You're listening to Lewis Silkin Radio. Hello and welcome to Lewis Silkin's newest podcast. This is the in-house employment lawyers coffee break with me, Colin Leckie, and my colleague, Taryn Dwockley. Taryn, have you got your coffee at the ready? Controversially, I've gone for a chai tea today, Colin. A chai tea? I'm not sure about that. You're probably celebrating your nomination as International Employment Lawyer of the Year, aren't you? (laughs) A a tipple of choice to do so. And actually also congratulations to everyone else on the call who's been nominated in the in-house category. Yeah, and uh, Taryn will be thanking his mum later on in the podcast. Nomination (laughs) form for him. Um, Anyway, so back to business. So what is this new podcast highlighting two key legal developments or practical takeaways from the world of employment law, uh, building on our in-house employment lawyers uh, community. Many of you will come along to our regular events in person and online, and this is something that builds on that. Uh, Without further ado, over to you, Taryn, for the first development. Thank you. Well, in the last few weeks, we've seen the fallout to Lawrence Fox's comments on GB News dominate the headlines, and we thought we'd start on safe grounds with an entirely uncontroversial topic that had absolutely no prospect of getting us cancelled. But that wouldn't be as interesting as covering Fisher and London United busways, so I've decided we're going to cover that instead. Afterwards, to steer us into safer waters, I'll hand over to Colin, who will share insights on the worker Predictable Terms and Conditions Act. So, for those unfamiliar with the Fisher case, it concerns a claim for direct discrimination on grounds of gender reassignment. The claimant's claims included assertions that a driver had nearly hit her with their bus in a near-miss incident, and that an insult was used uh, by another driver who referred to her as a wanker. The tribunal dismissed the claims here and found that the key incidents did not happen. And going forward to try and avoid us being cancelled in our very first show, I'm going to refer to the second incident as the insult rather than continually referring to the profanity in question. However, the purpose of raising this wasn't just to have a bit of fun and being able to swear into a microphone. It's because there are actually two key takeaways, we think, for this audience. First, the finding around gendered swear words. On this, the tribunal held that it did not consider that particular insult to be a gender-neutral term. The panel members held that in their experience, it is a term that is applied to men, and there are equivalent but different swear words that are specifically used to insult women. So had the claimant been able to establish that the insult was said to her by a colleague, the claim for direct discrimination on grounds of gender reassignment may well have been successful. What can we take away from this? Well, without question, we know that misgendering is offensive, and we will all have policies and training in effect to reflect this fact and make sure we train our employees accordingly. However, this case raises the prospect that a person's choice of swear word could also misgender someone, cause offence, and be capable of establishing a prima facie case of gender reassignment discrimination. So we don't think it's practical or sensible to be drawing up a list of gender neutral swear words for you to encourage your employees to use in the heat of the moment. But instead, it should form part of the training and awareness that we undertake as employers to make sure that we are 
giving our employees guidance on appropriate workplace behavior. And speaking of that training, it comes on to the second point that I wanted to pull up from this case, and that is around the all reasonable steps defense the employer had sought to run in this case. As good employers, we will all believe that we've taken appropriate steps to ensure that we can rely on this defense if we ever need to. But this case sets out some helpful guidance of what a tribunal would have expected from a respondent in these particular circumstances. Unsurprisingly, that includes having relevant diversity and harassment policies and ensuring that those are up to date, which they were not in this case. Ensuring that those policies make clear who they apply to, in particular if your workforce is made up of more than just employees, and that there is sufficient awareness of your policies within your workforce. It's not sufficient simply to have a copy pinned to your staff notice board or virtual notice board, as the case may be. You need to make sure that your employees know that these policies exist and where they can get a copy from. Training is always going to be an important part of any reasonable steps defence. And it's not just going to be sufficient to raise awareness of different protected characteristics anymore. We need to be training on the importance of inclusive language and terminology. Finally, one of the more interesting points the tribunal raised was the importance of having employee representative groups to allow minority groups to have a voice in the workplace. All of these things are good and sensible solutions from the tribunal, but what's interesting about them is, while we've always known it's a high threshold to run a successful, reasonable steps defence, the guidance from the tribunal in this case gives us a flavour of just how far a tribunal may expect us to go, potentially as large multinational employers, and gives guidance in terms of the steps that we should be putting in place to ensure that we are maintaining the inclusive workplace we all want. Over to me, who doesn't love both a brand new employment law and a reason to have to write a new policy? So the Workers' Predictable Terms and Conditions Act received royal assent on the 19th of September. Although, and I suppose this is good news on the policy writing front, it won't actually come into force for another year and we'll need some implementing regulations before we get to that point. So what is it? Well, this is something that's been knocking around since the Taylor Review, which would you believe is getting on for six years ago now. Um, And ironically, in the post-Brexit era, a lot of the concepts in it are very similar to those in the EU's Transparent and Predictable Working Conditions Directive, which many of us have been grappling with from an EU-wide compliance perspective in recent times. What it does is give some workers, agency workers and employees a new statutory right to request a predictable working pattern. But importantly, it's only a right to request. It's not a right to have a change. But you'll still need a process for considering these requests. So that's where your policy comes in. But you'll be able to say no to them using the same eight legally permitted reasons for saying no to a flexible working request, such as the burden of additional cost, detrimental impact on quality, lack of client demand, and so on. And query in view of that how much bite this new law is really going to have. So where flexible working requests are concerned, as we know, the thing that employers are often most concerned about is not some sort of procedural footfault, but rather the chance of an indirect discrimination claim, such as where a female employee makes a request due to caring responsibilities or a disabled employee makes a request to accommodate a disability. Requests for more predictable hours are less obviously likely to involve such discrimination, but of course that will depend on the underlying facts. 
Another curiosity to flag is that although the new law is targeted at people on zero hours contracts, other atypical work, low wage sectors, etc, etc, it's possible that a much wider range of contractual arrangements are going to be caught by the provisions. Let me ask a question. Taryn, do you think of yourself as uh, someone who has predictable working hours? Yes. I mean, of course, all lawyers are famously known for having entirely predictable working hours. <laughs> Absolutely. I know Taryn's very much a nine to five and always, always popular. <laughs> Um, no, well, under the Act, a contract which specifies core hours of work, but says they can be varied by management as required, or even the standard requirement to work such hours as are necessary to fulfil the duties of the role and so on, is arguably a work pattern with a lack of predictability about hours of work. So could, could a Taran say, well, hold on a minute, I'm working all hours every now and again, and my hours go up and down. Can I have a more predictable working pattern? Uh, possibly they could. Now, of course, employees with those sorts of contracts, which will include many of you listening in, might be less likely to request a change in the first place. And the employer can always say no for one of the specified reasons with probably limited downside, but you'll still need your procedures in place to deal with the requests reasonably and within a timescale of one month. Now, important details, as I say, to be contained in separate regulations. That will include things like the length of service you need to make a request, that might well be 26 weeks, the form of applications and any compensation that will apply for breach of the requirements. And the interplay between predictable working pattern requests and flexible working requests is also something we hope the government might iron out because there's an obvious overlap there. And the government also says that ACAS will prepare a new statutory code of practice um, underpinning this new act. So that's something we'll need to have a look at as well. And there's going to be a public consultation on that code this autumn. And of course, looming on the horizon is the chance of a change of government. Uh, Labour says it would seek to go even further when regulating in this space, for example, banning zero hours contracts, giving anyone working regular hours for 12 weeks or more the right to a regular contract and ensuring that all workers get reasonable notice of any change in shifts. So this is unlikely to be the end of the story on the right to predictable work. And that seems like a good moment to clock off, Taryn. We've made it to the end of our very first of these podcasts. And I now know to put my request in for more predictable hours. Indeed. Um, and I know to turn it down. <laughs> so please do join us for the next of these podcasts. <laughs>